Pete Rose belong in the Hall of Fame? Yes, he does. I just talked to my Uber driver about this on the way over here. The Uber driver's argument was Pete Rose should not be in the Hall of Fame because he's arrogant and he won't apologize, which was an interesting take because a lot of people, I feel like, I mean, they don't want him in the Hall of Fame, obviously, because they know he gambled, but they don't realize he never compromised the integrity of the game because he only ever bet on the Reds to win. Yes. Pete, yes. I, so Pete Rose belongs in the Hall of Fame. I agree. Um, he's he's actually going to be coming here in October. Nice. To do signings. Like I'm a big baseball geek. I collect baseball cards as a grown man, and I, I flip them Love on it. eBay. Um, but yeah, he's coming here. I, I 100% think he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Um, and the reason is I kind of like his story i think it makes him all the more interesting that Mm -hmm. he bet on himself to win yeah winning was not enough at a certain point for him anymore yep i mean big red machine all those guys belong in the hall of fame yeah i uh my girlfriend and i went up to cooperstown with her family to see ken griffey get inducted a few years ago yeah and uh yeah he was he was walking around signing baseballs and everybody was like he's definitely gonna go gamble that that money off he's just getting <laughs> he's just getting uh his pocketbook was it uh king griffey jr or king griffey senior king griffey jr oh okay yeah the kid got inducted first year of eligibility i want to say it was 2015 okay it was great it was so fun mike piazza got inducted you'll like this you said you're a yankees fan yeah so piazza was like after 9 11 there was the subway series where they played the yankees and it was like just New York pride through the roof. Piazza like hits that home run. They end up. I, I don't know. If, I think the Yankees ended up winning the series, but uh, yeah, uh, in 2000 they did. That's when that was. In 2001 is when they lost to the Diamondbacks. Okay, so then in two. This is 2000. So I guess it's before 9/11. But he had incorporated in his speech to the Hall of Fame that uh, he was like talking about being in New York and like wearing the Jersey and stuff. And when, when he was like, and when I walked it off in the subway series, I was proud as hell to be playing for the real New York, the Mets. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so there were all these dudes from Queens just like clapping in their buddies' faces who are in like Yankees gear oh, and stuff. Yeah. So funny. I was like, this is, this is the most New York baseball guy experience ever. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's been good. It's it's been a miserable year for the Yankees until they traded for Joey Gallo and Anthony Rizzo. Because mm-hmm. then wow, all, that recently? Yeah, it was right at the the trade deadline. Yeah, so they got a little bit hot before the trade deadline, but they really didn't like kick it off until after the trade deadline because it put all this energy into the into the team that wasn't there before. They were just lifeless. Yeah, the, the fucking the richest team in baseball. Well, besides the Dodgers now. But, um, yeah, so once they did that, they breathed live back into the the club. And what was funny is everybody was like, we need to fire Brian Cashman, yada, yada, yada. Fuck Brian Cashman. Yeah. And then he does, like, that old school Yankees move, which we're getting the two biggest bats on the market. Right. And bringing them in. Yeah, and kind of late in their career, too. And, they're at, and big contract guys, and they're just like, fuck it, we're going to push the chips and all in on the table. That's a typical Yankees move. Yeah. Um, this is the year that like that was the move the kind of move that you want to see from a baseball team your expectations are so much higher than mine like the reds are in the wild card run just like the yankees 
and I feel like we've had like the most memorable season in like 15 years but you as a Yankees fan you're like oh, yeah. this has been an excruciating season oh, and you're yeah. like in the same place as and they're they were in. just just barely above 500 all year <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh man so how long have you been in Nashville for uh 10 almost 11 years okay so you've been you've been here for a minute so you've it's seen been a while. all the changes that have happened yeah January 2011 that's when I came here um so yeah seen a lot of changes I've seen the population almost double when the rent was still cheap. Yeah. I'm, I'm still paying pretty cheap rent, but don't tell anybody. I feel like somebody will kill me if they find that out. (laughs) I've been in the same place for like seven years and it's, uh, I have like a ghost landlord who owns a ton of properties and like a few trailer parks and stuff. So I think he just has like thousands of tenants and just doesn't give a shit. Yeah, you can still find deals in Nashville because of that. Just like old school Nashville people that own yeah. a bunch of properties. Yeah. And they're and just, you just looking to have them filled. So they and can when you get them. in one of them, don't leave. Yeah. Because the deal only gets better. Yeah. If I leave and somebody else comes in, he's going to hike it up. Yeah, of course. So you, you just got to stay put. The nature of business. Yeah. Did you know that you always wanted to move here and like pursue music for your career? Yeah. Um. Well, I don't know. This always seemed, I always figured I would end up here, but I always dreamed about New York um, or different New York or LA or New Orleans. I knew I always wanted to live in a city and make music and and be in a music city where like a, a massive part of its identity is, are the musicians that live there. So, um, so yeah, when I was in high school in Cincinnati, I was weighing my options. I almost played high school football. I I mean, uh, college football. I was weighing my options on like where to uh where to go to school, what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to pursue music. Um and then the more I thought about it, I was like I need to just if I'm going to do this, I need to go to school quickly and like get wherever I'm going. So I started looking at audio trade schools and settled on a school named SAE, um, just a little two-year trade school. And they have campuses. I think there's one in Atlanta, Nashville. There's probably Orlando. more now. Yeah. New York. Um, but Nashville was the closest. Uh, my grandparents retired on Lake Barkley. Um, so I had family close by and everything. So Nashville just made the most sense. So... We uh, we came down for a visit and toured SAE and the studios and stuff and went out on Broadway with my fake ID and that was like 2008, 2009. I was like, all right, this is the place. This is the move. Yeah. Haven't left. So did you grow up in like a musical family or anything like that? Not really. I get asked that a lot. Um, all big music fans, but I don't even know. I mean, they're they're more intense fans than casual listeners i mean everybody likes music but um all of my brothers have like if you named any band that has gone on tour in the 21st century me or my other three brothers have seen them like i guarantee it um but also um being from appalachia there was a lot of bluegrass growing up um my uh 
Papaw used to play bluegrass all the time. So I grew up, there would always be instruments in like everyone's houses, which is kind of like an Appalachian thing. Like we would, we had a dulcimer on the wall and people would have banjos on the wall, stuff like that. Somebody might know a couple chords here and there, but, um, by the time I got the bug, I was like pulling everything off the wall, just trying to figure it all out. Um, what was that thing that triggered the bug for you? Nirvana. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. When I was like 12, I heard smells like teen spirit for the first time. And I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. Um, and they, they were about, I don't know if you remember, they released like a 10 year box set. Um, with the lights out. Uh, yeah. I think that's what it was. It was yeah. like a silver cover, kind of a strange looking mm-hmm. thing. Um, yeah. So they were doing all this promotion for that. That would have been 2004. So I was 12, 13, just like bullseye, prime age, prime demographic for Nirvana, like pissed off, didn't know why. Yeah. And they're like doing all this promotion on MTV, playing like the unplugged. Basically, MTV just turned into like a Nirvana uh, propaganda machine for a few months the summer that I was like going through puberty. (laughs) So I was like, give me a guitar right now. I want to learn guitar, bass. I want to like beat the shit out of drums, you know. That's definitely what did it for me. Nice. Yeah, no, that that's a great box set uh, too. I, I was lucky to have a really cool music store in my hometown called Bull Moose. And they're a northern New England chain, basically. And the guys that started Bull Moose also started this company, Fieldstack. Um, and Fieldstack is used at like Grimey's and a bunch of other places to for their buying algorithms. So interesting. Yeah. So like if they see you order, uh, I don't know, like Hocus Pocus, they'll order seven, whatever they think you'll like because you like Hocus Pocus or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was always music to discover at this record store for me. What kicked it off for me was Green Day. It was the time of American Idiot. American Idiot had just come out. Yeah. Around the same time. Yeah. Yeah. We're, We're probably the same age. Yeah. I'm 29. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that was uh, pretty influential to me was just having that record store because they would have these things right on the like front of the, uh, of the record bins of the CD walls. And it would have, if you like Green Day, check out Nirvana, stuff like that. Kind of what the algorithms for Spotify and Apple Music do now. Mm-hmm. And these guys were also the guys that started Record Store Day. So oh, cool. it started because of them. So they're like intense music fans. And this uh, record store started in my hometown. So it was super influential to me Yeah, to just go in and discover all of these random different things I would have never heard of, like the Misfits. Because I like Green Day, I was able to get into the Misfits totally. because of this record store. Yeah. That's awesome. Was it mainly just like a stand where they would have like, if you like this, like I'm trying to think of like a physical... So, algorithm um okay so they're basically like these cd shelves and everything's organized they have it organized by genre too okay so everything was organized by genre and then at the end of the stand there was like a little display mm-hmm. and the staff would make picks for what they think you would like yeah so if you like xyz check out this and of course Whenever like the Twilight soundtrack or whatever came out, they would have like all the Twilight shit, and then they would have like Supermassive Black Hole on there, the album, and they would say, sure. check this out. 
Nice. God, record stores are so cool. They are. They're a dead uh, a dead art form almost. I yeah. mean, we live in in Nashville, so we're lucky to have a few good ones. Mm-hmm. But there's not many left. Yeah, it's easy to be romantic about record stores. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, flipping through the milk crates, and I love just like I still like uh, I think. I'm not sure if Grimey's does, but the Groove has a record player. If you remember, used to at Target and shit, when people would buy CDs, you could go sample everything. Yeah. And they just have record players out with headphones at the Groove. You can go pull things out of the sleeve and listen to them. And The Great Escape uh, does that, too. And the, it's the also, one over on uh, Charlotte Pike. I feel like when I really started getting into the music, too, I became really obsessed with the fine print of records, too. And you can find so many good things by like, once you start to recognize names and producers and studios and stuff, you look at a physical copy of a record and you read where it was recorded and you're like, oh shit, this was at RCAB in 1967. This is probably going to kick ass. Yeah. Um, So yeah, record stores are awesome. So what was your journey like as a sound engineer in Nashville? Because you are the sound guy at Cobra and you're a fucking kick-ass sound guy. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, I went to audio school. I moved here definitely with the intention of, like, musician first. Uh, But I wanted to be well-rounded. I wanted to be able to pay people in trade because I knew this was um, a very impossible financial financial endeavor if you don't have backing. and I don't come from like a like mega wealthy oil family or some shit. Yeah. You know? So, um, so yeah, I I I wanted to learn audio. I wanted to be able to record myself, which ironically I never do uh, anymore. Um, but I got into the live world because after I was done in school, I found myself working at this place called Madonna's in East Nashville. I don't oh know yeah, you, yeah. Are you familiar? Have you been? How long have you been here? I've been here six years. Okay, so you you it was around for a couple of years. That's where the Cinco de Mayo is now, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I was working there as like you know a, a nineteen twenty year old started in the dish pit started from the bottom. Now we here literally uh, started in the dish pit and like worked my way up and became a server and stuff. There was this dude named Terry Rickards who. You all probably know he booked Basement and Basement East for a while. Okay. He worked at the Five Spot for a while. He's he's always kind of had his hand in the scene, but he was brought on at Madonna's and just kind of took over there upstairs. If you've been upstairs, you know there's a little stage area by the windows. Um, that place used to be Radio Cafe, too. I don't know if you guys knew that. Uh, so I played at the old radio or the new radio cafe the one that's the, the second one the second one yeah yeah, yeah. With th3 right cool um yeah he terry came in and was just like i've got a bunch of audio equipment and like i'll bartend up there just let me book some talent and it'll be really easy like broadway sound like we'll basically just like set up a a little mixer and the bands can run their own sound and he did that for a couple years and they were just amazing the scene was really good at the time um it's always really good but you know how it evolves yeah Yeah. it fluctuates it evolves uh the scene at the time was like 
Sturgill and Margo and everybody before they had made any records. Oh, shit. Just kicking around in East Nashville? Yeah. Yeah. They were, like, bartending up the road and shit. So, like, um, I would play shows up there. Like, Terry would ask me if I wanted to do an open set. And then it would be, like, Margo and the Price Tags are her band that she had with her husband. Um, I'm drawing a blank on their name. But they used to play there all the time. Um, And just these incredible people that were in their early 20s and were waiting tables themselves. And I got the idea. Um, Terry walked. He went to Five Spot eventually and started booking shows down there. So I got the idea of I could take that over. I could do the booking and, like, I could run the sound. And instead of just, like, you know, booking a Friday and Saturday night and bartending and them running their own sound... So I sat down with the Mad Donna's crew and was like, was I basically just said like, if you want to invest in this room, I can just manage it as a music venue. So we did that, and I did that for five or six years. After that, I went over to the Crying Wolf. Um, they had a little back room um, that they weren't really using for much. They would do a show every now and then. I think that there was even like a putt putt thing back there oh shit they like rolled out some astroturf and shit uh there was all kinds of weird stuff that they would do in that, that little garage cool. space yeah it is a cool I, I, I love all those people over there um they've had a they've had a hard go of it last year and a half i'm sure they got hit with the uh tornado right before the pandemic they got the one too um but i went over there i helped them build that backspace into a venue and kind of got that running uh, so my first two rooms in Nashville were basically just going to places and being like, like, this is Music City. I can add 2,000 in sales every night if you just let me. Um, so I did that. And then um, I was booking shows in the front room of Cobra while also working at Crying Wolf. And then the owner of Cobra asked if I'd be interested in, in uh, doing more booking for the venue and then it just slowly evolved into me being over there full time. So it sounds like you have somewhat of a, of a business sense. Was that something you always had from the time that you were a kid or was that something you just developed along the way? There was opportunities. I think I just developed it along the way and it definitely came from a, I mean, I, I wanted it. It's, it's all just came from my ambition as a musician because I wanted to meet musicians I wanted to still be working in audio and pay people in trade. There were, and still are all there's times all the, all the time when I'm like, trade me half a day in your studio for, you know, whatever dates you want over here or over there. Um, so I think it, I, I think it just came from trying to think outside of the box and creatively, as a, from coming from the place of a musician, it wasn't, um, it, I, 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 the business side of it was just like, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I just, I just felt like it was the best path to, uh, to meet musicians. And also I was fucking sick of waiting tables at brunch every weekend at Matt Donis. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that well, will definitely spur some creative thinking as well. Yes, for sure. Because I know for myself, I've had 
moments in Nashville where things have been going well and when things have been going not well. And anytime something is going well, it's because I'm on my shit trying to think outside the box and really gunning for whatever it is I'm going after, even if I don't know what it is I'm going after. Yeah. If that makes sense. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It can be, uh, it can be tough. It can be real tough trying to find your place in this town. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely trying to like balance work and life when you're like trying to make it like trying to transition to just, you know, doing one thing, like whether it's playing music or just running sound and you're trying to balance, you know, waiting tables or whatever. Yeah. I never got into the studio world. I would still really like to do that. Um, I, I've always kind of been on the live sound of things, but, um, if I could get my hands in a, in a studio place as well, that would be so cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I feel like I've been lucky because I've been able to do all sorts of things between the podcasts, recording studio, mm-hmm. live stuff. Um, and being a bass player, you know, people are always ringing just because it's the one thing everybody always needs. Mm-hmm. By the way, this Friday, August 20th, come see me at the five spot, 9 p.m. I'll be playing bass with Violet Moons. Oh, yeah. Bring your Vax card. Yeah, bring your Vax card. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you have to have a bunch of different things under your belt in order to survive here. Yeah, totally. You have to be able to contribute to the scene in a myriad of different ways. Um, as we're doing right now. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, 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 there's only a few people I feel like that, that come here just as a player and they're so good that one gig is like a domino where they're just suddenly everybody wants to work with them. Everybody's like, Hey, have you heard this guy yet? That just doesn't happen. I feel like everyone has to, to, uh, to contribute in different ways because it takes a fuck ton of people to do this other than musicians. Yeah. So, so to have a strong scene and a real scene, everybody has to contribute. No, for sure. Yeah. And I, I think another important thing in Nashville is, make friends like find out who your tribe is mm-hmm. it's like i play with Teo and james and th3 i'm good friends with the weird sisters and mm-hmm. also josh norfleet from the reveal they used to be no name blues and the, those are the people that have always contributed to whenever something successful is happening to me it's be, it's something that's come from my friends did you come to cobra on new year's eve for the Weird Sisters? Yeah. Yes. A New Year's of years Eve ago. 2020. Yeah. That was like the the last party the world ever had. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. That was awesome. The it first time I show. saw the Weird Sisters, I was like, I was like, the next time I throw a big show, I'm definitely going to hit these guys up. Oh, yeah. They're, they're other level and... Party band. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> and what what they portray themselves as is 100% what they actually are. Right. Yeah. It's not a it's not a gimmick. They don't wash it off after the show. No. They're, no. <laughs> they they are dirty. living they are living the weird sister life. <laughs> yeah. Have you been to their their place? I haven't. No. Oh, dude. I I don't know them that well. I know that you know them really well. I yeah. saw that they had been on the show a few times. Um other than just booking them and running sound for them a few times, they've always been super nice. I think they're way cool, but yeah, I don't know them that well. They're, they are funny as fuck. So they have, Millhouse has been in the basement. We've gone over there to jam because sometimes they'll just throw like random jams at their house. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's, I don't even know how to describe what it is. 
How would you describe their basement, Mo House? Well, you're in Madison, but you're not in Madison, dude. It's like a you're whole other realm, bro. Vortex. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's a... You're in the Weird Sisters realm. Okay, yeah. so this is um, this is like like Jack White's disgrace land. Like, do they have like an elephant on the wall and shit? Like, how how weird <laughs> oh, are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it, what yeah. it's like. Um, so there's just like okay, so anytime I go over there, I'll text Teo a picture of. Just something random. Like, they have a signed picture of Maria Menounos (laughs) on their wall. They have, like, a picture of a dog and a baby. It's all just completely random, but it fits the vibe. And that's where they record all their music at for the most part, too. I love it. I love it. It's it's other level, but those are the kind of people that you meet along the way in the journey, you know? Yeah, Like, you meet all these interesting weird eccentric characters that were the weird eccentric character from their hometown Mm -hmm. and they come here and then this town is filled with them they come here and they become weird sisters if you will (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) uh i just watched so when my my girlfriend's mom came to town we went and saw this this i promise this is gonna come back around okay. you'll, you'll know where i'm going with this it sounds like i'm making a hard pivot uh but my girlfriend's mom came to town we went to the bell court and we saw that anthony bourdain movie so i've been uh i've been going I, I went back and started watching all the parts unknown and uh the other night um i re-watched the nashville episode and i hadn't watched it since it came out uh but it's this incredible like time capsule of uh East Nashville and Nashville in 2015. Like they go to the old Dinos, they go to Edgefield, stuff like that. Anyway, how this comes back around um, is they went to a party at Jack White's Disgrace Land and all like got tattoos and shit. And that's what made me think of it. But uh, yeah, I think I think not only can you tell. Um, I mean, I like if if you would have asked me to describe the Weird Sisters place, I would have probably been able to describe it and say like you know they're they're no bullshit what you see is what you get <laughs> yeah. but i also think that you can sense that on the outside when someone's playing a character on stage you yes. know what i'm saying 100%. Like, like sometimes i see a rock band or i'm mixing a rock band and i'm like this guy like lives in a mansion in franklin for sure and he's got on his like rock and roll costume yeah i this is i think one of the, the darker sides of of the east nashville scene it's like you can always tell the kids whose parents were able to buy them Gibson ES-335s. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because there's, there's shits. Some of the rich kids are good. Yeah. Some of them are actually good. And I really try not to sound like the, like, jaded dude. Like, I, I actively combat being the guy that's like been in nashville too long you know like i never want to be the guy that's just like oh look at these fucking guys but it is like i've seen a lot of people do do have these incredible runs and it's like i know for a fact that you have like a thirty thousand dollar pr and no label backing so where the fuck is that money coming from and what could i do with that money you know it's it's but that that type of thinking can really swallow you. So I actively try to fight it, but yeah. it is frustrating, especially, you know, 100%. after you've put out a few records and you and you see people, you know, doing things, but it is what it is, you know. Do you know who Chaz Palminteri is? The actor? 
No, I don't think so. Okay, so Chaz Palminteri, um, you would know him if you saw him. He uh, he has a great fucking podcast. He was he was the guy who wrote a Bronx Tale, and he um, he plays like the get the gangster lead in the film. He was also in uh, the Usual Suspects, and he was in the Night yeah. Night at the Roxbury. Totally. Um, but he uh, he has a great podcast where he talks about um, he didn't make it until he was. 38 or 39 or something like that and he was talking about how he had this job where he was unloading trucks and he just found this job and he's like okay i can go do this job but it was a unloading trucks and they were like sub-zero temperatures because it was it was like frozen squid rings or seafood or some bullshit like that Mm -hmm. he said he was only able to do it for two weeks and then he quit and so he had all of these kind of jobs his whole time, like trying to quote unquote make it and become a success. And it wasn't until he was 38. And that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. Yeah. James Murphy of the band LCD Sound System, he started LCD when he was like 34, 35. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. They're a really, really interesting case study on like the journey to success and it was definitely out of the box creative thinking it was like so many brilliant veteran moves made by james but he was a producer so he knew all kinds of people he started dfa and stuff in new york city produced all kinds of great records and um he basically said there's this great book called meet me in the bathroom that uh I can't recommend enough. It's awesome. It's about the like rock revival in the early two thousands. Um, but he, he says in that book, like I knew I didn't, he was like, I was over it. I didn't want to compete with other bands. I didn't want to try to win any rooms over. I just, I wanted to play parties where people were already having fun and were on drugs and are unsuspecting that there's a band playing. So they would like go to these warehouse raves, essentially, that he would get hired to DJ at. And then he would just be like, and my band's going to do an hour. He would DJ him. They, they said their first three shows were like months apart. They were in Los Angeles, New York, and Paris. And he paid the band his cut for his DJ. And then they would just like play to these people. And they were the only band. Like he just, they they started late and they totally like, jumped all of the proper like steps if you will but he had all that experience going into it he knew he wanted to avoid it yeah he had all the experience of doing it in other bands and stuff and being in the scene but but yeah he started late and just you know wisdom and creativity was Mm -hmm. able to just catapult from the jump well franz ferdinand's uh the band not the archduke Mm-hmm. <laughs> also kind of had a similar experience because I think Alex Capranos, he was 30 by the time he started the band. Yeah. So when that first record came out in 2004, he was already in his 30s. And I mean, you could say the same thing for, for Sturgill too. When did he start really like blowing up? He was probably in his early 30s. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not. I, I, I feel like... Uh... Yeah, I feel like he was probably he's he's probably late thirties now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when he was playing around East Nashville, he was probably late twenties, early thirties, and then I don't remember who somebody did his first record that got him a ton of recognition. Yeah, it was uh, what was that producer's name? Milhouse. Do you remember? It's the the dude 
He, uh, Dave Cobb. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. And he worked on, on the first couple of Sturgill albums, I think. Yeah. I remember, I remember he played at the five spot and I went to it and I got there late. This was when he was starting to get buzz. And, and I remember, I don't remember specifically who I was talking to. It may have been my friend Dylan, but I remember somebody that just said like they were awesome and they just rapped with Dave Cobb. And he was like, so everybody's here because everyone knows that like, Sergio's about to blow up. Yeah, yeah, and he did. There's been a f- I've I've heard that probably a dozen times living here, or uh, honestly, probably two dozen times. I've heard you know so and so is about to blow up for this reason or that reason. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, and there's been some times where I've thought for sure it is going to happen, and it doesn't. But the the two biggest ones were definitely Margot and Sturgill. Why do you think it is that someone doesn't blow up when there's that hype around them, that East Nashville hype? I don't know. Um, I mean, there's there could be there could be tons of reasons. There could be a drinking problem. There could be a PR that quits because you know because of the drinking problem. Because of the drinking problem. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I wish I did know shit. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> well, there's no linear path to success. I, I do think, especially with the, the music thing, it's such a spiritual journey as a as you know ooky spooky as that might sound yeah it's also like you have to talk about it in these like competitive terms because there are only so many slots available for people to make really a really really comfortable living and to play the theaters and do all the shit everybody wants to do so you have to talk about it in these competitive terms but the way i've always looked at it too is this is just who i am like, I would go fucking insane if I wasn't writing music, if I wasn't around other musicians. So, like, I don't know. It, it doesn't all have to be, like... Competitive. We're busting kneecaps and... Yeah. It's just... It's just... It's fun. It's who I am. It's 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 who all of us are. It's what we do. It's what... You know. I feel like it's it's it goes beyond just what we enjoy to do when we, you know, go out at night. Well, I think, too, that the internet provides us with an outlet, and it really evens the, the playing field. Absolutely. The internet created a middle class. I'm so I'm so glad that I'm a musician now. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. I'm so glad. I mean, it's crazy that to think if this was the 60s or 70s, none of my shit would be recorded, likely. Because I've never got a record deal. Yeah. Um, and back then, people would go their whole careers right and and this is where like pub deals became a huge thing because songwriters were just like I want somebody to cut my song, but it's crazy. Like if if the internet did not exist, Spotify. I mean, you got to start paying us for our streams, baby girl. But I appreciate Spotify so much. Well, it democratized music. Yeah, and the fact that everyone has a search engine in their pocket at all times. Yeah with the entire library of global music releases is pretty remarkable with the history. We have the history of recorded music in our pockets. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, amazing. 100%. It's super cool too. It is really fucked though, that the music streaming services don't pay more to yeah. musicians. It is fucked. They need a tip. The artist feature. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Um, I mean, it's like, in the porn industry, if you hop on any porn site, 
on the website there's a fucking tip these people yeah. tip tip these sex workers why why is there not a tip the artist feature and they added something during the pandemic i don't think it's there anymore but they added this like donate to the musicians charity of choice through these hard times this feature everybody just started like adding their paypal to it and i was like hell yeah i did it too i was like hell yeah we're gonna cheat this like tip us and 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 it wasn't that they were like blindly you know lying to the market people were like going on instagram like i just put in my venmo information to this feature on spotify because spotify doesn't pay me so if you've been listening to my record go ahead and throw me five bucks so kind of backdooring it a little yeah bit. yeah the market and the artists were yeah. doing it yeah because everyone agrees that this is bullshit <laughs> It's complete theft. I mean, I like I said, I love Spotify, and I, I I think that it is a fantastic service and platform, but they're getting away with murder. Patrick Carney talked a little bit about this. Um, he said that he met with uh, the dude from Spotify, and he was saying, look, we give label the, the money to your label, and then the label decides from there what to do with it. Because really, what ended up fucking happening, and this always happens in, in the music business, is they are 10 years too late to whatever happens. Mm-hmm. You, you look at like Napster and yeah. that whole ordeal. They were behind the fucking times. When did the streaming services get popular? What, like four or five years ago? Yeah. Spotify and Apple Music? Yep. That was a whole decade and a half that they missed out on. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a joke. The uh I feel like they I they they were in a good place with iTunes, but I don't know. You can't fully do iTunes because people were still finding the back doors to free music. We live in this everything now for free, especially if it's digital content, which is what music is now. It's As like, long as we trade our personal information, it's free. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they like, I, I liked the $1 per song thing, but then everybody was still using LimeWire and everything to steal the records they want. So Spotify makes perfect sense. You pay a monthly fee, everything's free, especially as music, you know, connoisseurs. Everybody, like, I don't know about you all, but I'm just like on the hunt. When I listen to music, I'm just like listening to everything. Stuff I've never listened to before, like, going after it, you know? Yeah. So I want f- everything to be free um, through a monthly fee, but they just gotta, they just gotta, they gotta raise the streaming rate. And there was this whole battle in Congress. I was, I was trying to follow it, but it was, like, so sloppy, or so hard to find, and it was so, like, things were being thrown. Convoluted. Yeah, convoluted. Things were being thrown in the like 11th hour. There was like a lot of nasty shit going on. I couldn't keep up with all the like litigious, uh, you know, fine print. Oh yeah, no. I I used to be super into to looking at the news and trying to be an educated person, but I found the, close, <laughs> the closer I get to 30, I don't really care anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I yeah. treat people as well as I can and I try and do what I view as the right thing. To make peace with myself. Totally. I've learned I've learned to like um just put it like cap on it. Like 
like today was a pretty heavy day in the news. Um, and I was like, I was watching the news cause I wanted to hear about everything. And then the president addressed the nation. And I like, before he even started talking, I was like, as soon as he's done talking, I am turning this off. I'm not going to read another article. I don't want to like hear people's opinions on it. I don't want to hear CNN, like, you know, go back and forth on everything he said. Like, I just, are you talking about the Afghanistan Afghanistan crisis? Yeah. Yeah. So he addressed the nation. I heard what he had to say. I had my own opinions on it, but then I was just like, I'm done for the day. Cause yeah, that it's, it's so unhealthy to just devour the news like you can do. Like yeah. you can do now. Well, we're the first people in the history of the world that can see every crisis that's happening mm-hmm. in every corner of the world. And there is an unlimited amount of information. So you can do reinforcement research. You can work backwards before reaching a conclusion. You can determine what your conclusion is going to be and then go looking for facts to back yes. it up. It's so, it's so unhealthy. Well, that's what Facebook really has be. That's become. why everyone thinks they're an expert now yeah. on everything. Yeah, I, I accepted the fact. I used to think I was smart when it came to, to politics and the world and shit like that. Mm-hmm. And now I realize I'm dumb and I just have to take it from the, the human level that everybody else is also dumb and we don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. It's like the Afghanistan thing. So it's fucking horrible. Like, of course, America... Look, there's a lot of things I love about this country. I think it's, it's great in a lot of ways, but we are a fucking empire. Yeah. We are a fucking empire. That's why we have bases in Germany. That's why we have bases in England. That's why we were fighting these wars yeah. in Afghanistan to get oil and fucking heroin pills. Yeah. I know? mean, we were born colonizing a continent. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. We are certainly an empire. Yeah. And that that's just the ugly truth of it. And do I think some of the American ideals are, are good? Yes. But like as I've gotten older, I accept that there is a darker side to what America is and all the, like the positive things of what it is. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, yeah, I, am certainly, I'm, I certainly, you know, consider myself a patriot. I, 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 I love American culture. I, I love our history with all of its, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's roses and it's thorns. Um, but I feel like you, 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 you can only reach a true appreciation of anything if you like, you know, look in the shadows and, and if you're, if you're, if you're solely just preaching American except exceptionalism, you, uh, you're frankly just like lying to yourself to a certain degree. No, I mean, there are, there has been a lot of shitty things. Oh yeah. Well, Uh, it's like, if you go back in time, and you talk to the founding fathers, and you're like, all men are created equal. Right. And the, the, their whole thing was 80% like, of them own slaves. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So if, the, if Women they saw, can't vote. Exactly. <laughs> but it was almost unintentional that an idea like America was even created. Because it, like, I think America was designed to change slowly with the times. Mm-hmm. Like, we do these snail-paced moves and it's crazy to think that when we were kids, it was a taboo topic to talk about gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Now it's totally accepted. And Obama if, was against it. Obama was against it. Yeah. People Obama like opposed it that, until he got into office and then like quickly did a 180 and everyone was like, oh, what, that what was political it. mastery that he would, that he got into office so that he could make it legal. And it's still like, how fucking sick is it that he politically had to oppose it? 
for so long. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. I mean, politicians are a reflection of of the public, you know. Of the um, willful ignorance of the public. Yeah, totally. There was this, uh, w- my girlfriend and I went to Savannah, Georgia last year, and we toured this, like, this crazy plantation home with this dude named uh, Oglethorpe. Have you heard of this this cat? No. Lord Oglethorpe. I've never heard of the cat Oglethorpe uh, before. I ain't never heard of Oglethorpe. <laughs> so check this cat out. <laughs> uh, so he landed in the U.S. and basically started the colony of Georgia um, in Savannah on this beautiful property and he like had his own constitution and everything this is where I, he had his own constitution i mean he was like starting a colony but yeah um so and, and you can tour this 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 property now and this old plantation and everything and like look at all this stuff <clears throat> um but this is where i get romantic about america's because this guy came you know for the same reasons of everything we tell ourselves about, like, we are this melting pot of all these different languages and religions and everything like that. But if you talk to, you know, 60% of America, they're like, no, we're these fucking people. And we yeah. speak this language and we practice this religion. So this guy, he has these, like, beautiful ideas, this perfect constitution of, like, this harmonious, like, Garden of Eden-esque colony of Georgia all these rich slave owning tax evaders start landing in Georgia and they're like, fuck this. And they're just like hauling ass to Mississippi, like totally bypassed Georgia. And there were like militant conflicts and shit. Like, uh, I think he had like 10 Marines or something like the United States Marines had just started and they had sent some to his like little colony in Savannah, uh, around, uh, what, what was the Island I said? drawing a blank now anyway anyway um hilton head uh but yeah it was uh yeah it was really cool to see to see that that that's that's like you know that's the that's the romantic america everyone likes to envision is like that was just an 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 intellectual who wanted like a harmonious and he was trying to get civilization and that's why and yeah okay no that was like in his constitution was like no slave owning and like different tax rates that like pissed everyone off it was all of this shit of just like you know we're all going to be a prosperous person where you can be whatever you want to be which is you know the idea of america that's where america was born yeah so this is a it's a it's this like amazing small case study wrapped up into this little colony in hilton head this little like plot of land essentially um but yeah, people were landing and were pissed. People were like arriving and they were like, they had like barrels of liquor and slaves and were like, I'm sick of paying fucking taxes in England. And this guy was like, well, welcome. Here's what we do here. And they were like, fuck this. I'm out. And isn't that the story of the United States yeah. of America? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like that, that it does represent America in a lot of ways. You know, there's so much unrest, especially after last year. Yeah, you know what I mean. It, things have calmed down a lot, but it's still—I mean, it's still there. Yeah, like it, you just turn the pandemic. We're maybe up to like a five right now on the pandemic. You turn it back up to seven, uh-huh. and slowly it goes up to eight. People start losing their minds again. Yeah, I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm optimistic that this is going to be the last like hard surge. I hope so. But, yeah, I, but I, I don't know. 
I don't we know. were at a boiling point before the pandemic. The pandemic was just like, like, all right, look yourself in the mirror. But we were, we were there. It yeah. was, it was like hardly under the surface. No, no, it, 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 it's like a bad pimple. You know what I mean? That you can't. Yeah. Pop. I mean, and I was as guilty as everyone. I was like fucking raging pissed off during the majority of the Trump administration. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to turn the Poptimist pod. I don't want my episode of the Poptimist podcast no, to be about no. hey, that's what, politics. What the, what the Poptimist is is it's everybody and everything, every viewpoint. Yeah, from around the uh, around the world, um, or at least nationally. But yeah, it was just it was it, yeah those those were those were harsh years. But like we were saying, we, we and um, it's it's calmed down a little bit. Uh, but we've all like learned just as individuals you know the dangers of consuming too much media the dangers of like it's crack hating it's like crack. of like like your phone can literally tell you to hate strangers with a burning passion and like i definitely take that hook line and sinker sometimes oh yeah well everybody i'll, I'll see like an anti-vaxxer rant and i'm just like you stupid motherfucker and then I'm like, put your phone down. Like this, this person lives in Kansas, and like, let them live their life or yeah. whatever. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's like the, the the whole thing. Like people getting upset about shit, and I've definitely been guilty of it too. That's why I stopped reading the news. I'm like, what does this actually? What am I actually contributing? Yeah. Like, how am I making the world? It's a better so place unhealthy. Right now? Yeah, it's so unhealthy. And not only are you never going to reach people, you're never going to be able to be reached yourself if you're just like all consumed with, you know, hating someone you don't know because of, you know, some stupid point that was, you know, that tw- they, tweeted out in like 50 characters or less. Or chances whatever. are that they don't also even believe themselves. Right, right. Totally. It just confirms something for themselves, you know? Yeah. So one of your songs that I really fucking love. Let me look up the title. What it was? Uh, where where do I leave my mountains? Or what, like what what is the title? Sorry, I don't, I don't remember what it is. Where did I leave my mountains? <laughs> I wish that was the title. Uh, it's called What's Left of My Mountains. What's left of my mountains? Sorry, I fucked that up entirely. Ah, I misplaced my mountain somewhere. <laughs> but I related to that song when I heard it. Um, just because it sounds like a reflection of like looking back on what you thought you were going to be versus where you are and being disappointed with not necessarily disappointed, but have an acceptance of life of what the results were. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That was, uh, yeah, I wrote that one, uh, probably five or six years ago. There's a line in there where I, where I say I'm 24. So I guess it was five years ago. Um, but yeah, my uh, true story. My there. So there's a a plant in Ashland, Kentucky, where I was born. Very, very, very small town. I'm actually from Flatwoods, Russell, which is a very small neighborhood in Ashland. Um, but yeah, there's this this plant, AK Steel, where like multi generations of my family worked. Both sides of my family, uh, there was like a flame on top of it. the 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 plant was called Amanda, and we used to refer to that flame as Granddad's fire because like my great great granddad lit the flame right before he retired or some shit. 
Um, and my dad was like the head of the plant at the time. Um, and like my mom called my brothers and I and like mentioned that he had a position opened. All of us are like, like my brother's a school teacher. I'm down here. We're all doing our own thing. Um, but it was just, I think the place she was coming from was like, this is kind of like, she knew none of us were going to take it, but it was just like, just so you all know, just so you all know, this is what we do. You know, this is like what the Brown men have done for, you know, probably 200 years is uh, coal and steel. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I, I wrote that song in 24 hours about that, just that whole thought process of like, what if I actually went back there and like worked in that mill? And uh, yeah, I'm definitely glad I'm not. <laughs> but but it's but it is it is an interesting it's 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 a it's a it's 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 uh i don't know easy to ponder what life would have been like had i done that yeah i I definitely feel that way about the coal mines Mm -hmm. where i'm from yeah you said west virginia yeah i could have got a job easily in the coal mines and that's kind of like everybody did that so I i definitely know that feeling yeah in um in brunswick my hometown like everybody's dad works at this place called Bath Ironworks. Mm-hmm. So there used to be a Navy base. Absolutely. My dad, my dad was in the Navy for 20 years. He retired and then he got a job at Bath Ironworks mm-hmm. building battleships for the Navy. And that's where everybody's dad worked at. It was straight up like union gig. You know what I mean? Yeah. Out on the shipyard, just whatever you would imagine Maine to be. That's what it, what it was. Yeah. Um, and I had a point to where I was able to apply for a job there. I was probably like 22 or something like that. They rejected me every fucking time I applied. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being a blessing in disguise because a lot of the, the guys who end up working there, you know, they work there for 20 years and they're able to take all their vacations and they have their union stewards protect them when yeah. they're doing drugs and shit like that <laughs> um, on the job site. But it's a very comfortable and numb existence. You know, totally middle class working class existence and i and i'm not trying to talk bad about it because i think that's what a lot of america for a long time was not uh-huh. so much anymore but um yeah it's it's bizarre to think of the the different paths and journeys you could take just by that slight left turn or deviation from the path yeah and a lot of those industries create these mono economies which is part of the like what i what i talk i i touch in on that too in the title what's left of my mountains i'm not only talking about like how it's toxic for the environment to just hollow out mountainsides and like mountaintop removal they just blow these fucking mountains up yep not only is that toxic but there's also these mono economies that are created and then now that these industries are shuttering and moving and evolving and and uh these towns are just drying up um and everybody's doing pills yeah so i mean i've like lost family members i've watched multiple pockets of my family just like destroyed by drugs and the poverty that's that comes along with mono economies so what's left of my mountains isn't just it's not like a like you know a green energy anthem it's about like the struggles of that appalachia has seen because when that industry was booming and they were by and the and like you know coal and steel uh 
carpetbaggers were like buying the farms and buying the supermarkets and shit, which is just like, you know, if you're if your workers are are buying baloney at a market that you own that was made from a pig on a farm that you also owned, you're just recycling that money around. So yeah. once you, so once you tail, you know, once you like pack it in and leave, all of that shit just dries up. That reminds me, so at this place, Bath Ironworks, every mm-hmm. single day, there was a taxi that you could take down to this strip club, Platinum Plus, which I think eventually became PT's. It was down in Portland. It was like 45 minutes away. <laughs> and the pimp was Bath Ironworks. Yeah. I knew it. <laughs> but, but they would come They would come up and the, the taxi would say Platinum Plus, you know. I, I don't know if... Bath Ironworks owned that or just like someone's brother-in-law owned it or something like that. I bet it did. You're getting free labor if they're spending all their money at your bar. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's crazy, man. That big industry money is, is, it's some dark shit. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, it completely influences American politics as well. Yeah. Have you read, um, Hillbilly Elegy? But no, it got turned into a movie, right? Yeah. It got turned into a Netflix movie. Um, I really loved reading it. I, I, my politics are quite different from JD Vance's, but I really enjoyed reading that book because that, that is my upbringing, like 100% literally to a T the plants that he's talking about Middletown ironworks and, uh, AK steel in Ashland. He, he moved from Eastern Kentucky to, uh, Cincinnati when he was young. All of that shit. We lived the exact same life. Like my dad worked with descendants, uh, relatives of his. Um, so I read that book just like I just devoured it because I was like, my God, this guy lived my exact life. And he's like telling stories about like family and like going to Eastern Kentucky and shit that are just like it's uh, wildly similar. Have you heard the new Killers album that came out last week? I've heard about a 30-second clip of a performance on Kimmel, but I have not listened to it properly yet. So the new album is called Pressure Machine. I know it sounds like really folky. Yes, it is. And it reminds me a little bit of like um, Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. But a lot of the lyrics on the album, uh, Brandon Flowers said uh, they were influenced by country songs. And he's telling all these stories. They recorded the album during the pandemic and he's telling all of these stories about like the the heroin thing that's hitting small towns because like people get on these pills and mm-hmm. then um they can't afford the pills you know and then they switch over to heroin just shit right. like that right and, and there's so many just like made up illnesses to get a prescription oh like, yeah there's so there's so you can basically just like go say your shoulder hurts and you may go to it may take you two or three doctors but you can you can find a prescription for and a, legal heroin yeah and eventually the prescription's not going to be enough and eventually you're going to go to the street it's it's a mess where can people find your music where can they find you what's all your social media <laughs> I feel like we keep taking super heavy turns uh ethansamuelbrown.com i'm i mean i'm like a minimalist folk musician so i keep i keep everything real Real uh, easy to find and and uh, blandly packaged, if you will. Yeah. Uh, Ethan Samuel Brown on Instagram, Ethan Samuel Brown on Facebook, EthanSamuelBrown.com. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Nice. 
Can we play What's Left of My Mountains out on this episode? You sure, that? yeah. Okay, sure. so here's What's Left of My Mountains. my lady and me and where once ran a river of muddy tides let its veins across my countryside what's left of my mountains I'd make my papa proud of me, it's my birthright But even then I'd have to ask my lord still What's left of my mountains Yonder lay In the vines that grew atop the clay What's left of the rail yard The cavalcade With the price of the profits we made What's left of my mountains This podcast is produced to you by Taylor Miller.